morning. If you'd join me in turning to Hebrews chapter 5. Bear with my old English. No, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Oh, sorry. Make a fool of myself. Chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant? And on them that he himself also is compassioned with infirmity. And by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he say also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Lord God, I lift your word up to you. I praise you that uh, you would give us such amazing word to learn about you, to study you, to come into our lives, to to change us. And I pray that your spirit would be here, Lord. I lift Jackie up to you, that uh, you would give him discernment and um, strength in teaching. And I pray that there are Open hearts and open ears. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Man, God's good, huh? Am I living? It's dead. Give me a nickel if you bring me a battery. Or not. (laughs) A dollar? Man, it's like my kids. I better put these on. I'll never know how to do it. That didn't help. It's a green light. Yep. All right. So where were we? Oh, yeah. It's a cool day, huh? Sun is shining. God is good. Things are, uh, are happening in our world. Yeah? Man, it's a dicey time. It's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be focusing on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we come... To the book of Hebrews, we're reminded as we work our way through it that Jesus is greater than everything. That really the answer to the book of Hebrews is Jesus. Whatever the question is, the answer will be Jesus. So you guys can hold on to that. 
But what we have is Jesus is greater than another revelation of God because he's God's final word. Jesus is greater than the priesthood because he's a priest forever. Jesus is greater than Moses because he kept the law. He fulfilled it. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than everything. And so when we come this morning and we we open it up, we're going to see the greatest section of the book of Hebrews focusing on the attributes of our Lord and Savior is going to be focused on His high priestly duty. And there's a lot of reasons for that and a lot of... What do, you, what do you call it when you guys... You guys ever watch movies that you like foreshadowing? No? Nobody likes foreshadowing? You just want to know what's happening? Man, you'd hate to watch a movie with my wife then. <clears throat> foreshadowing is what it's all about. Building the story. Helping us see all the little pieces. And today, as we look at the Word, there's a lot of that that I hope God's going to lighten for us, enlighten us as we look at His Word, so that we're able to see our great... High priest. So the, he begins with this concept that Jesus is a high priest that's similar to all other high priests. First, as he compares Jesus as high priest, he's going to compare him with other high priests. And then he's going to contrast him, show how much greater he is. So let's take a look. Hebrews 5.1 For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may differ, or I'm sorry, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the first thing we see is his confirmation. How is it that Jesus is confirmed as a high priest? It says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed. Every high priest is appointed. Now, what is his confirmation based on? How is it that Jesus Christ can be confirmed as our high priest? How is it? That he's appointed. Well, first we see in his presence in the world. See, every high priest is taken from where? Among men. So if Jesus wasn't incarnate, if he didn't come in the flesh, he couldn't be our high priest. In order to be a high priest, guys, a priest had to be able to put his hand on man and turn his gaze toward God and intercede between man and God. Jesus becomes so much greater a high priest because he can do both, put his hand on man and his hand on God. Because he is the God-man. He is able to bridge that gap. So we see this appointment is because, one, he was incarnate. He was incarnate. He came in flesh. He was among men. But we also see his position. That his, his position is appointed for man. When we look at this, it reminds me It says that he is appointed on behalf of. That word for, it says he was appointed for men. That word for is a Greek word, huper. Huper means on behalf of. In other words, the great picture that we have is in the Old Testament of of how that uh, is compared to a a high priest. Look at Exodus chapter 28 verse 9. And we're going to see two examples of how the high priest was appointed on behalf of men. For them. How, how was that? Well, it says in Exodus 28, 9, Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, six names on the other stone, in order of their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you will engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. And you will set them in settings of gold. 
And you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as a memorial for the sons of Israel. Listen, for why? So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders. So whenever Aaron was going about, remember we talk about the high priest. We're looking at his garb. On his shoulders were two stones, six of the tribes on each of the stones. So wherever he went, whatever he did in his high priestly duty, he was bearing the people into the presence of God. Now think about how is it that we come into the presence of God today? The Bible tells us, Jesus said, I am the way, the, and the, how many people come to God without him? So we, we only way we get into the presence of God is on his shoulders, right? He bears us. He's appointed on behalf of four men. He takes men into the presence of God. He bears them. But that's not the only place the ephod had the children of Israel. It was not just on the shoulders. It says in Ephesians, or in Exodus chapter 28, verse 21, uh, talking about the breastplate. And the stone shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one in its own name, and they will be according to the twelve tribes. In verse 29 it says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. So where did the names of the children of Israel go on the high priest? On his shoulders. So what? He could bear them, carry them before God. And then where else did it go? Over his heart. Over his heart. So that he would have compassion. So that he would remember to have compassion on the children of Israel. Now, when we look at the children of Israel as an example, they messed up, right? They blow it. The high priest is continuously having to go in and make offerings, not only uh, uh, for his own sin, but for their sin as well. So what was he to carry over his heart? The names of all the tribes that he bore in before God, not only on his shoulders, but over his heart. See, Jesus Christ, as our high priest, does the same thing for the church. On his shoulders, he bears the church into the presence of God. And over his heart, Every name written, just like in the Lamb's Book of Life, so that he can have compassion over and for his church. So what were his priorities then? As he's being appointed, he's because of his presence in the world, he has a position to bear men before God and to keep compassion over men as he carries them over his heart, just as a high priest did before him. So what's his priority? What does he do when he brings men in? He, he, he ushers them into the presence of God for things pertaining to God. See, the service that Jesus Christ does as our high priest, or the service that the high priest did, was helpful to the people, but its focus was on the Lord. The focus of the high priest, the centrality of what he did was to honor and glorify God. And so that's what Jesus does. How is it that he honors and glorifies God? He brings us to the Father. You know that the Bible tells us that one day, all the redeemed, Jesus Christ, is going to bring them, all the redeemed, before the Father. He's going to bow his knee before the Father and he's going to give them to him. Look, all that I have redeemed are yours. They're all yours. For what? The glory of the Father, Jesus Christ is doing that work 
as our high priest, that he may be all in all. He may be the complete and utter total redeemer. And the purpose, okay, his, his priorities, we want to stay focused on the Lord. What's the purpose? That he may offer, that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Did Jesus do that? That he may offer gifts and sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 8.3 says this. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one, Jesus, have something to offer. So the purpose of a high priest, one of the actions that he's going to do is he's going to bring an offering. So Hebrews 9.14 says this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did Jesus offer gifts? Did Jesus give an offering? Sure. He gave himself. One sacrifice, one for all. Used to be that the high priest had to do sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, but... Those sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, could never purge our sin. But the blood of Jesus Christ, it can. And as our high priest, he's made that offering for us. He's fulfilling the position. He's doing the work. And in verse 2, we see that compassion upon him. Look, in verse 2 it says, He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to... To weakness. So who does he have compassion on? The ignorant. The ignorant. Oh, I'm sure there's at least one person in here going, <laughs> I don't know what's, what, what's going to happen to me. I'm not ignorant. <laughs> says, your argument is with God. What do you mean? Well, you know, God says we're all ignorant. Yeah, sorry. Oh, Jackie, what do you mean? Well, no, really. If we look at the word, look what the word says. In Romans 3.11, what does it say? There is none who understand. There is none who seeks after God. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. What's God saying? They're ignorant. He only has compassion on the ignorant. It's good news, then, that we're ignorant. That there are none who understand. That we don't know how the pieces fit. We don't know how things go together. We don't know or understand how all of these things connect. So the word of God tells us our high priest has compassion. Two kinds of people. And in these two kinds of people we have all of mankind amassed. One, the ignorant. I just told you the Bible says we none of us understand. But what's the second group? All who are going astray. That remind you of a verse, Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. How many is all? Most? A few? All. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So the Lord laid on him, who? The Messiah, the sacrifice, the iniquity of us all. So when we look at it, he has compassion on those who are ignorant. He has compassion on those who go astray. He's laying out the very same thing that John told us 
In John chapter 3, verse 16, which was, God so that he gave. God so loved that he gave. He has compassion. He has compassion on the ignorant. He has compassion on those who wander. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. So why does he have compassion? Why? He, he lays out for us in verse 2 that he has compassion. But what's the second part of the phrase? Why? Since he himself is also subject to weakness. When Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he came to, I don't know, walk in our shoes. You get what I mean by that? He came to understand the weakness of the flesh. He came to understand the struggle of temptation. He came to understand the, the issues that we face. So we're not able to look at God and say, oh, if, if only you knew what it was like to be me. Because the Bible declares that he was in all ways tempted as we are. And the Bible says this, only about Jesus. It doesn't say this about you and I. It says, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Just for a minute, what would it be like to know every thought in someone's head? What would it be like to know all the possibilities in somebody's life? And how close or how far they are from really being able to have the things they lack in their life. The Bible says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Because he who knew no sin would become sin for us. Our sin sacrifice. So that we might become the righteousness of God. All of these things upon him from the moment his ministry begins until the moment his ministry ends. Man, God doesn't tell us what it was like in his life as a child. There's a few Gnostic Gospels out there that, that are pretty bogus that, that try to fill in the gaps. But the reality is, from the time Jesus was baptized forward, that's the part we know. Three years. Three years he ministered. Three years he was acquainted with grief. Three years he was full of sorrow. So more than any other high priest... Because every once in a while, you and I, we, we think we're better than somebody else, don't we? I mean, you're not actually going to lie to me and say, no, I've never done that. I've n no, I have never thought that I was better or elevated above or beyond someone else. See, that's part of the junk that's in humanity, isn't it? <clears throat> we stop being able to have compassion but God, and He always does. No matter what they look like, no matter what they smell like, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, He's able to have compassion because He knows what it is to be us. That's a pretty incredible high priest, no? This ability that He has to have compassion. But then look at verse 3. He begins to, 
to compare. He, he's going to lay out this statement and then switch to compare what makes Jesus better as a high priest. It says in verse 3, because of this, <clears throat> he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So every earthly high priest not only was weak like men are weak, but also was a sinner like men are sinners, right? So in order for this high priest to be able to intercede for another person to take him before God Almighty, he has to first cover his own sin because of his weakness. But the Bible tells us that while Jesus experienced the weakness of flesh, he never sinned. He was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the comparison by contrast begins. We see the ways he's similar to an earthly high priest. Now we're looking at the ways that he's not similar. One of those being an earthly high priest has to offer a sacrifice for his own sin before he can meet the needs in the people. We see it in in Leviticus, four places in Leviticus talks about it. Leviticus 4, 3, 9, 7, 16, 6. Leviticus 16, 24. They all have the same thing to say. What do they have to say? They say, look, every high priest first has to sacrifice for his own sin before he can meet the need of the people. But in contrast, we're going to see that, that Jesus doesn't have to do that. In contrast, look at this. No man takes the honor to himself. Verse 4. But he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Nobody comes up and says, you know what? I'm going to be high priest today. There was not a vote. Hey, let's go to a vote. Everybody vote for who you think should be the high priest. There was not a vote. Nobody took it upon himself. God did what? Called. God called. One of the first things I give uh, young men or old men or in-between men who are considering being more involved in ministry is I give them a book by Spurgeon called Letters to My Students. And really, I give them, don't tell any of them this or they won't read the whole book. But really, one of the reasons I give them that book is one of the first chapters is on the call. Because the call is everything. If you're called of God... Then doors will open. But if you're not called of God, you don't want to make a door open. There's a lot of people, a lot of guys in ministry around the world that maybe they shouldn't be. Well, they went to school and they learned Greek and Hebrew and they learned how to, to diagram the sentence so they can find the nearest antecedent of the Greek or they can chase down the issues in the Hebrew. They're able to do all those things. And that's great, and that's super, and that's awesome. But if you're not called, knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. The call. Nobody takes it upon themselves. Nobody takes it upon themselves because what? He says, he, you have to be called just as Aaron was God picked Aaron, right? There was a time when people said, Oh man, Aaron, we don't have to listen to you. I mean, we didn't vote on you. We didn't pick you. You're just here in charge. 
Oh, I really, I think we ought to have a, a voice. In fact, the guy who was the loudest was a fellow named Korah. You ever heard of him? Korah, he's clamoring, he's saying, I don't know, I don't think this is right. So Moses says, well, alright, you guys want to... You guys want to have a vote? Bring, a, bring all the leaders you think should be uh, leading rather than Aaron. All the people you think ought to be the high priest, just bring them on up. So they brought them all up. They gathered them together. They said, now bring your rods. And they brought all their rods. And they took their rods, you know those walking sticks? You guys with me? And they put those rods in the tabernacle and they went to bed. They get up the next morning and they go to look at the rods. And Aaron's rod budded. It brought forth fruit. What was God saying? Yeah, I don't really care if you like him or you don't. I picked him. He's my anointed. For this time, he's mine. And he proved it to him by causing a dead thing to bring forth fruit. What's the rest of the story? Was Korah any happier about that? Not really, because at the end of the day, he felt like he had more votes. So, we go into phase two. You guys remember phase two? Yeah, they're all standing outside. God, whenever God does this, just so you know, if you find yourself in this situation ever, where God says, put my guys over here, and put them other guys over there, it's going to be bad. You know how Joshua says, choose this day who you will serve? You might want to decide which line you want to be in. So everybody over there in rebellion against God's anointed, the ground opened up and swallowed them. Bloop. And they were gone. No more complaining. This is, (laughs) at least for a couple of days anyway, this is his Anointed. So the call of God is everything. The call of God, guys, is more important than all that other stuff. One of the blessings about Calvary Chapel is Calvary Chapel, a long time ago, decided that the call was more important than a person's ability to get schooling. So Pastor Chuck Smith, who is probably about my age now, maybe, at the time, gave, I don't remember the exact number, so I'm going to make it up, but it's pretty close gave like $250,000 to a 19-year-old kid to go start a church. You know what that kid's name was? Greg Laurie. Heard of him before? Now, when he was 19, he was a doodler. (laughs) He'd sit down and doodle. If you remember, if you're old enough, uh, there's a few of us maybe, if you're old enough to remember the little... Sing songbooks that Calvary Chapels used to hand out. They had all this artwork all over them. Yeah, that was Greg. He drew all that. But Chuck saw something in him. The calling. The rest of it came. Right? Because when God calls, He will always equip the called. And that's what God does. I'm thankful that, that Calvary Chapel sees the opportunity... In people, maybe even if others don't. They see it. So God places the call. So what was his selection as our high priest? Well, we see it in verse 5. It was proclaimed by the Father. Look at it, verse 5. So also, or in the same way, 
Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. He didn't decide on his own, I'm high priest. But it was he, God, who said to him, God, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember I told you about foreshadowing? Why does it say, you are my high priest? Today I have chosen you. Why, is it, why does it say son? And, and the word son is, is not the word for you're my little born one. It's the word for heir. Oh, you're my heir. You're, you're my chosen. You're the one I have selected. So we look at it. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. If you think back, there was a, a purpose in the families of God that began the nation of Israel, wherein the firstborn was what? Think about it. The firstborn was the high priest of the family. The right of the firstborn was also the right of priesthood. So God looks to his son, Jesus Christ, and he says, Today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. I've chosen you. I've set you apart. You are set apart from all others. One and only unique God. You are chosen. Now, when God does this, this is a quotation from Psalm 2. So we're going to go back there in just a minute. But before we do, there was a prophecy in 1 Samuel about the replacing of the Aaronic priesthood. That there was going to be a replacement of the priesthood. That the priesthood of men were going to be set aside one day. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, it says, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. God laying out in First Samuel that there was going to be a replacing of the Aaronic priesthood. There's going to be a replacing. Now Jesus didn't glorify himself. He didn't honor himself. He didn't say this is mine. Because in John 8, 54, Jesus answered and he said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, listen to this phrase, of whom you say, He is your God. It's my Father who honors. It's the Father who said, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you in psalm 2 in romans 15 3 it says this for even christ did not please himself but as it is written the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me christ didn't honor himself he just received that which the father was giving he's saying my father honors me my father sets me up So the same reproaches that were upon him are upon me. The same reproaches on Christ now fall upon the followers of Christ. So then what was the response of the Father? The response of the Father was to declare, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. You are appointed High Priest. There's two times that we see the Father make a response to Jesus Christ, right? 
Two times where God speaks from heaven over Jesus Christ. The first time is at his baptism. At his baptism. It says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven and said, what? This is my beloved Son. We only have two times this occurred. This is my beloved Son. One at the baptism. Several chapters later, at the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, 5, it says that while he was still speaking, Peter was, was bumbling, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. At the baptism, he added words. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That was the anointing. At Matthew 17.5, at the transfiguration, he also added a phrase. Was the phrase then? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. That was His authority. How do you know that, Jackie? Well, the first refers to His anointing, because Acts chapter 10 tells us so. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says, Now God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The beginning of Jesus' ministry at his baptism, God anointed him, the Holy Spirit came upon him, Jesus Christ moved forward. That was his anointing. The second speaks to his authority. We know that because the scripture tells in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and where else? Oh. We don't always live like that though, do we? Does Jesus have all authority on earth? That's what the word declares. All authority in heaven and on earth. So go, therefore. Go. Go is the call that He gives us. So what do we have? We have the response of the Father. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. We see two times that God spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Speaking of His anointing. And hear Him. Speaking of His authority. We should be listening to Him. We should hear what it is that He has to say. What it is that He's telling us. But he's also letting us know that these events that we're looking at were prophesied in the Psalms. We just heard Psalms chapter 2. Let's look at Hebrews 5, 6. It says, he says in another place, You are a high priest, you are a priest forever, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the first we have is a reference to Psalm 2, 6 and 7. And the second is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 2 is a psalm for the king. Psalm 110 is a psalm for the priest. In Psalm 2 it says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Every king of Israel had that psalm read over him when he took the throne. Every king. Now there's a king 
of Israel who's never going to give up the throne. He took it in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, his father, the Ancient of Days, told him, Sit on your throne while I make your enemies your footstool. He's a king. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to get into Melchizedek. So you, those of you who are into Melchizedek, he's like three chapters away. So it's going to have to hold on until we get to chapter 7, uh, which could be admittedly six months from now. But <laughs> we're going to talk about Melchizedek. I promise you we're going to talk about Melchizedek. But as we look at it, here's what I want you to grasp from this. Psalm 2, 6 or 7, prophesied in the Psalms. It, he told us in Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He told us in Psalm 110, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what do we have? We have a king and a priest prophesied in the Psalms, which was foreseen by a prophet. The prophet's name was Zechariah. He wrote in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, just listen. He says, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is Natser, the branch. The man whose name is Natser, from his place he will branch out. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yea, he will build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, listen, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on the throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. He will be a priest sitting on a throne. Interesting. So we see this foreshadowing in the Old Testament. Talking about a priest and a king. Both registering for us, telling us, speaking to us about Jesus Christ, our high priest. You are a son Today I have begotten you. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We see both priest and king fulfilled in that section. Now when we talk about Melchizedek, I'll just give you a little teaser. Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament twice. In Genesis 14, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the five kings runs into a king. Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem, which means king of peace. And his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He was a high priest of El Elyon. He was a high priest of God Most High. And Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tithe of all. Abraham, who becomes the father of the nation of Israel, before there was a nation of Israel, made Melchizedek's priesthood higher than the Aaronic priesthood when he gave a tithe of all to Melchizedek. And then they took bread and they broke it and ate. And then they took wine and they poured it in a cup and they drank. 
And then Melchizedek is gone. We never hear about where he came from or where he went. A thousand years later, David prophesying about the Messiah says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You're going to be in the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because he had no father or mother, no beginning or end of days. He is made like unto the Son, high priest forever. There's only one priest, high priest of Melchizedek. Only one. Because he never died. He's never going to die. He is a high priest forever. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, there's a lot more about Melchizedek. We'll dive into when we get a little bit further. But let's look again where we're going. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. He said in another place, You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Contrasting again, still as we look at our high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the Son of God, the King of Israel. High priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, our priest and our king. What does it say? It says, in the days. Verse 7. You guys see it? The days is plural. In the days of his flesh. A lot of times people want to come to verse 7. What's the point, Jackie? They want to come to verse 7 and they want to go to the garden of Gatshmone. And they want to say, remember when Jesus cried out with prayer and tears and great drops of, of sweat like blood falling on the rock as he cried out to his father and ultimately comes to the conclusion, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That's part of it. But it doesn't say the day of his flesh. It says the days That's why I said in the beginning, he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. You know that when God created the heavens and the earth, death wasn't his purpose? You know, he didn't create us to die. You don't think it brings sorrow to the heart of God? Death being in the world? How about watching it every day? How about walking through the streets of Jerusalem and watch the little children that you know because you're God are going to reject you their whole life? And you watch them play. It's hard to have a lot of joy, isn't it, when you're looking at that Little face and saying that face is going to spend eternity apart from me. In the days of his flesh. Who in the days of his flesh. When he offered up prayers and supplication. Vehement cries and tears. Just because we know he cried and he wept and he shouted at Gatsmone. Doesn't mean he didn't do it any other time does it? 
How many times does the Bible tell us Jesus withdrew himself from his disciples, went away to pray? Over and over and over again. What's he doing? I mean, it it really can't be that the issue is death. He was born to die. It was never an issue, I don't don't know if I'm going to go to the cross or I'm not going to go to the cross. I don't think that's the issue. I think what Jesus is doing, I think what Jesus is calling for, I think what Jesus is crying out to his Father is saying, Lord, I need you. I'm, I'm here in the weakness of my flesh, and I need to be strong enough to finish the job that has begun. But you know, most of the time, that's not how we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus and we say, well, he's God. It was easy for him. Your only argument is with the Word. <laughs> Who says, he understood the weakness of the flesh. So if my flesh is weak, so is his. So what did he do? Cried out daily to his father, weeping and crying and calling and saying, God, help me in the battle. Help me stand strong so that I don't sin and blow it. Help me be the man that that you're asking me to be. Help me speak the words you've given me to say. Help me do the things you've given me to do. See, Jesus does that for us for our admonition. Because we think we can make it through life without doing it. We think we can throw up a prayer every once in a while. You know, Hail Mary. Throw it up when we got a minute. Let's just throw that thing up. And we wonder why our lives are, are just categorically filled with peaks and valleys and failures and problems and issues and struggles. But the scripture tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus prayed and he wept and he cried out to God. And the Bible says, God heard him. A lot of times people struggled with this idea. They, they look at it and they say, Jesus cried out and he, and he wept and, and God heard him. And, but he said no, because they think he's crying and weeping over the, over the cross. I don't think so. I think Jesus at Gethsemane, as he's asking if this cup could be taken from him, this cup of suffering that he had been drinking his whole life long, I think Jesus in that moment is just asking that the Father would give him the strength to finish his race well. Help me finish. I want to finish strong. I want to make it. I want to, I want to pull through. I want to get it all the way through. <coughs> so he's expressing his dependence on the Father. I need you. I need you for all of this. I need you for this Service that I'm offering as I give my body up. Offered up. Just like the high priest would offer up his sacrifice. At Gatshmone, at Gethsemane, Jesus said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. 
In Luke 22:44 it says being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That savior still lives to make intercession for you. That's how he prays for you. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that that, that same prayer, you know, the scripture says the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You want a definition for fervent? Look at Gethsemane. That's fervent. Passionate. Empowered. Weeping, crying, calling that God would deliver, that God would do. And the Bible says that he was heard. He was heard because of his Godly fear. So how was his prayer answered? You see, it says here that he was praying. Look what it says. In the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. But Jesus died. How did he hear him? We got we to dive into that a little more. It says, who is able to save him from. That word from is a Greek word preposition ek. Ek, it means out of. He's able to save him out of death. How do you do that? Because on the third day, he arose. He arose. The Father answered his prayer in the resurrection. And why did he answer his prayer? Because he was acknowledging his need of the Father every moment, every day, calling, Lord, help me, God, be my strength. God, take this cup from me. So then he provides an example for us. The example that we would understand what fervent prayer is like. The example in verse 8, that though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. You know, one of the most incredible concepts I think that we can take from this is to understand Jesus' obedience was untested in suffering. All eternity He had obeyed the Father. He never didn't obey. He always obeyed. He's perfect. But He never had to obey while He was suffering. Never had to. But here, as he walked on this earth, he suffered. And his obedience was proven through the things he suffered. He learned obedience. He learned how to obey in the midst of the most incredible suffering there is. And as he did that, somewhere... In the past, there was an old man who smiled and said, Though he slay me, yet will I obey him. Job thirteen, fifteen. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And all of a sudden, 
the obedience of Job and the battle with Job begins to make sense because the same charge was made of the devil to God over Job. Does he obey you for nothing? He obeys you because everything's good. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I obey him. C.S. Lewis has an incredible quote. It was funny because I was just talking to uh, Danielle who read Screwtape Letters, I guess, last week. Or had reread it again. And it was funny because there's this one sentence out of Screwtape Letters that really was impactful to her and it was the same one that was impactful for me like a hundred years ago when I read screw tape letters. Screw tape letters is a letter from a, a head demon to a lesser demon about how to keep people from becoming a Christian. But this lesser demon he messed up and, and the guy he was supposed to keep from becoming a Christian became one. So he's trying to get uh, directions from screw tape on how to keep him ineffective. And here's what his uncle has to say to him. He says, Be not deceived, Wormwood. That's a lesser demon. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished. And asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He provides for you and I that example. Jesus obeyed in suffering. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and Screw, screw tape, says to Wormwood, he lays this out, he says, listen, the, we're never in more danger when a, than when a Christian doesn't want to do the will of the Father, but intends to do it anyway. And he looks around at a world and he says, my world is a mess and nothing makes sense and I can't see God anywhere in this anymore. And lifts up his head to heaven and says, Why have you forsaken me? And then obeys still. That is what Job was all about. That is what the suffering of Jesus Christ shows us. And prayerfully, that's the thing that we can take from this. Because unlike those examples, you and I, we have a high priest who is weeping and crying and praying fervently in the heavens for you right now. Because he ever lives. He lives forever. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Verse 9, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Man, having been perfected, 
Up from the grave He arose, and He became the author, the originator of eternal salvation. A salvation that doesn't just go part way, a salvation that goes all the way, totally completes what was begun. And He bestows this on all who obey Him. And then you have the introduction. The introduction from the Father. Called by God as High Priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Earlier in, in verse 4 or 5, it says that the call was the most important thing. That was a different word. This word called here is the word of someone introducing a dignitary to everyone else. So God pointing to His Son in the, in the scheme of this, of this uh, Scripture we have laid out before us is saying, listen, look at the beauty for, for this My Son who in the days of His flesh when He had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear, though He was a Son, Yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And then it's like every eye turns toward Jesus. And God the Father says, called high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's our high priest. He's ushered in eternal salvation. And that eternal salvation is wrought. We see it brought to light through the things Jesus accomplished as our high priest. He made an offering so you and I could have eternal salvation. He who knew no sin became our sin offering that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we have such a high priest. So consider him. Consider Jesus. The greatest of all. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can open your word. God, and begin to unpack the truths that are in Hebrews chapter 5. And as we move through 5, 6, 7, 8, we're going to be really focusing in on this concept of the high priest. The high priest who didn't have to give an offering for sin because he himself was sinless, but he himself became my sin offering. That just like a high priest, he gave himself. That he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I can't even begin to fathom the, what it was like to be walking in the, in the footprints of God, looking at the world and seeing it from his perspective. Seeing the suffering and the pain and the hurt and all the effects of sin on a fallen world and mankind and his destruction taking place around him. His entire life. And then that day came, that moment came for him to come forward in baptism for the ministry to begin. And I would imagine that that moment became like a breath of fresh air as he, as he begins his ministry recognizing, okay, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. All, almost done. 
He walked and he ministered and he healed and he touched and he taught and he shared all the while knowing the hearts of this people had become hard. Their ears were dull. They would not hear. They would not see. The cross was a solution. And after three years of ministering that that night before the cross comes and as so many mornings before he spent it crying out weeping for his father to give him the strength to continue to help him finish the work that needed to be done for he Jesus Christ is the perfect man see the scripture tells in Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself He didn't trust in his deity, his godhood to deliver him. Instead, he came as man and trusted in the Father and the Spirit to give him that strength necessary. And so, he learned obedience in the things he suffered. He died, was buried. And rose again. And ascended into heaven where he sat down on the throne of his father. And his father declared. You sit here. That work is finished. And I'm going to make your enemies a footstool. Jesus as he leaves he declares to his followers. Those who have trusted in him. He says. So all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go. Go. Share the good news. Give the gospel. That a sacrifice has been made. That the path has been laid out. The way to walk. The path to walk. It's all before you. All the work has been accomplished. You simply need to receive by faith. And then... Just ask me to strengthen you day by day so you can walk the walk. God, I pray that we might learn the beauty of our high priest who ever lives making intercession for us who bears us on his shoulders and carries us over his heart, who loves us with an everlasting love, who is able to save to the uttermost. God, I pray this day no one would leave this place without knowing you. without giving themselves away and receiving the beauty that you hold out to us. God, be glorified in this place as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.